0: This is positive parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad Armin Broad. Hello, and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. Over the past thirty-five years, the international mega best-selling parenting guide. How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Mazlish has sold more than three million copies and received tons of accolades and awards. Over the years, Adele Faber's daughter, Joanna, and her childhood friend, Julie King, were doing workshops that were based on that famous book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen. And what they kept hearing over and over again from people in the workshops was, How do we talk so little kids, preschoolers will listen? And so, by popular demand, Julie King and Joanna Faber put together a book called Exactly That, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. She's got some concrete tools and proven tips that are going to help parents of preschoolers really navigate these incredibly common and frustrating challenges. Things like morning mayhem and bedtime battles, toothbrushing, lying, doctor visits, Anger, Your Child's and Your Own, and a lot more. They even have sections on kids with special needs and sensory processing disorders. It's an approach that'll help little kids grow into self-reliant big kids who are cooperative and connected to their parents, teachers, siblings, and peers. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start diving into the whole topic of talking to little kids when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin brought after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink, and you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. And you could do things that... Honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do. That I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom. I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. And my guest for this part of today's show is Julie King, who's the co-author with Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven. Julie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about your youth, because you were having a, a life, living not too far and being best friends with the daughter of somebody who's kind of become a fairly iconic here, Adele Faber, who was the author of a book that I'm sure a lot of people have had, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Was there a lot of pressure on you to be kind of a guinea pig when you were growing up?
1: Well, let me tell you the story. I met Joanna when I was six months old. Okay. And she was ten months old. My parents had moved into a house in the suburbs shortly before I was born, so my mother didn't know very many people. And she saw another mother of, at that point, two little kids, roughly the ages of my brother and me, walking down the street. And she ran out and invited her in.
0: <laughs> and that
1: was Adele wow. Faber and her, at, you know, her oldest two. And that's how I originally met Joanna. She and I went to nursery school together. Actually, we went all the way through high school together. Wow. And When we were in nursery school, Adele took a child guidance group with the psychologist Haim Gannat, and sure. she would talk to my mother daily, as my mother tells the story, and then they would try these techniques out on Adele and her three kids and my mom and her three kids. So I was, in fact, a guinea pig for this approach, um, although... I didn't realize it until I was probably a teenager, Um, and I was in Joanna's house, in and out a lot, over the course of our friendship, and I remember seeing her mother and another mother of a boy who went to nursery school with us writing writing a series of books, including How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And in the 80s, they also wrote a book called Siblings Without Rivalry, and oh, I yeah. got to copy-edit the book. I think I found a comma out of place and felt pretty <laughs> proud of my comma. <laughs> my, my I'm pretty <laughs> sure that I
0: interviewed her at one point for, the, for that book. So was it unnatural or natural or odd to kind of become the, the torchbearer for the next generation? Because, I mean, it's such a classic book, and, the, and what you're, you're not taking it and updating it, but you're certainly basing it on the, the classic
1: That's right. I started leading workshops based on the book after I had my first two kids. Um, The preschool where my oldest son went was looking for a more than one time event to do with parents and I had been studying group facilitation and group development and I said, I know this workshop, I've never led it, maybe I could do it. Um, That first group uh, met for eight weeks and halfway through everybody said, we can't learn this in eight weeks. You have to do another eight weeks. And we turned it into a support group that ended up meeting for four and a half years. And other people heard about it and started bringing me in um, schools and nonprofits and that sort of thing. And living rooms. I do a lot of living room workshops. So it wasn't something that I actually intended to do, Um, when I was younger, I actually went to law school and have a law degree. (laughs) So when I first started doing it, I thought, I want to tell people I'm some sort of expert because then they're going to be paying very close attention to every single thing I say, and I'm going to get much too self-conscious, and I'm not perfect. Um, So it took me a while to be willing to tell people, yes, I actually teach from this book, and this is what I do, and I'm a parent educator.
0: And then you moved on.
1: And then people started asking me, they started telling me, we need a book just for preschool ages, just for this two to seven age. Um, we love the book, but there's so many more situations that come up, and we don't know how to apply it. So I called Adele, and I, I said, I have your next book. And she said, oh, Julie, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> you write it. So I called my friend Joanna, who at, was also leading workshops based on Adele's book at that point, and I said, we have to write this book. That was an embarrassing number of years ago. And we worked on oh. it for quite a while. Um, but now it's coming out. It's very exciting. Yeah,
0: it's yeah. great. So has thing have things changed? And, and I mean, in, in the way that you talk to little kids, because there's so many things that, that I talk, I do a lot of interviews, obviously, with the show, that a lot has changed over the years in the way that you interact with teenagers or the way that you interact with teen boys or teen girls or certain you know, with technology and all this stuff. But Uh, with preschoolers, certainly there's an element of technology that creeps in uh, towards the later end of preschool, hopefully. But is it different, the way that you need to talk to them and the way that you need to listen to them? Or are they pretty, are we, you know, is human development not really caught up with technology?
1: I think think the basic principles, the communication principles of the how-to-talk approach are the same, um what's different are the challenges and the situations that parents are finding themselves in and yes i am seeing parents of preschoolers who are having to negotiate whether they can use the ipad how long they can use the ipad whether they can use my smartphone that sort of thing um and then parents are also in my experience much busier than they used to be 20 years ago yeah we've have way more parents uh, way more families where there are two parent families both parents are working, or single parent families, um, so parents seem to, in, in my experience, are feel even more stretched than ever. They don't have time. People say they don't have time to read a book. So one of the reasons we wrote the book the way we did is um, we knew pa- parents aren't going to sit down and just read through from front to back.
0: Right, you're doing it kind of situationally. That's, so we have yeah.
1: the second half of the book is all short chapters. So if you want to know how to deal with morning morning madness you can turn to that chapter if you want to uh figure out what to do about tattling there's a chapter on that um so we we've, we've got a lot of short chapters on really common challenges and conflicts that come up in a lot of families
0: all right so let's let's take an example actually you know before we get into an example give us an example of the the basics of the how to talk approach cuz it, it's kind of a mirroring thing as i recall yes but Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, just so we know, because I think it'll help to uh, to get that and get people back in touch with their their earlier parenting years, and then we can get on to...
1: So when I first started leading the workshop, I actually used the full title of the original book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. I was working with parents of preschoolers primarily, and they pretty much said to me universally... My kid talks a lot. I don't need to learn how to listen so my kids will talk. It's morning till <laughs> night. They don't stop. What I want to know is how to talk so kids will listen. And what I realized what they really meant was how to talk so kids will behave.
0: We'll, we'll do what I tell we'll them do to do. do what I say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. So one of the big principles of the book, and uh, a lot is based on this, is that there's a connection between how kids feel and how they behave. There's, and there's a connection between how we talk to kids and how they feel. If you think about your experience as a parent when you're glad that uh, reality TV is not in your house, you know when you're yelling at your kids or saying some some things that you later realize were not the most helpful, those often tend to be the times when you're in a rush or you're stressed or you had an argument with your boss or that sort of thing. Um, That's true for us as parents, and it's true for our kids as well. And there's a connection between how we talk to our kids and how they feel. So if we want to maximize the chances of them behaving well – then we need to pay attention to how we talk to them so that we pay attention to how they feel and help them feel their
0: best. Okay. And so well, give, it, give an example of how that would work. I mean, you've got one here about brushing your teeth because I think that, that there's going to be a lot of this when parents are going to say, I don't care about the feeling <laughs> that goes here. I just want this, you know, ABC to happen. I want you to put your shoes on. I, I, you know, who, who cares what, what's going on in there? Just shut up and put, well, of course, you would hopefully not say that, but you know, basically the bottom line is shut up and put your shoes on.
1: Right. It seems like the most efficient way to get a kid to do something is to tell them what you want them to do. Um, You'd think. You would think. And yet, if Until it were that kids, simple, yeah. right, if it were that simple, we wouldn't need books like this. We would tell them what to do and they would go do it. But kids don't. Um, So so what I would do is I would walk you through um, first acknowledging that, oh, you are not in the mood to brush your teeth right now. You're in the middle of something. You don't want to stop. Okay? Now, for little kids, the next step has to be engaging them somehow because they don't understand why you need to brush your teeth every day. Like, I did that yesterday. I've mastered that. I'm not really as interested in that anymore. So... Your best strategy for little kids is to be playful. I, I've spent um, sessions with parents where we've brainstormed various ideas. I'm going to tell you one that I used with my kids when they were little because they, too, didn't want to brush their teeth, um, which, was, which came out of desperation. One day when my daughter didn't want to brush her teeth, I said, do you know what? I heard that all the zoo animals have escaped and they're hiding in kids' teeth. Should we go look in your mouth and see if you have any? Well, she was dying to go see. What did you know what would we find? So she opened her mouth, and I took a look, and I said, oh, I think I see a giraffe. Oh, my goodness, there's a lion on this side. Hold on, let me see if I can get it out. And it was. I turned the whole thing into a game. Well, she loved it, and the next day, when it was time to brush her teeth, you can guess what game we played again.
0: Talking with Julie King, who's the co-author with... Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about brushing teeth.
2: Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take the baby outside every day, even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated. But really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on?
0: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
2: Hi, it's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking, now what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep. A little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart healthy trade up with healthier oils like canola, olive or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org face the fats. Canola info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's face the fats campaign.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Julie King, who's the co-author of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. So you were just talking about finding a giraffe in your daughter's mouth. Uh, how, how did that go? I mean, it seems like there's a difference in a, in a little kid's mind. Okay, so you found a giraffe. That doesn't mean you need to get it out, first of all, or that you need a toothbrush to get it out.
1: Oh, well, I used the toothbrush to find it and to get it Oh, out. you did? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, had, okay. I had a, a, had a, a goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, my point is that being playful with, with kids of this age is your best go-to. I mean, we can give them information. We can tell them that to keep your teeth healthy. We need to brush them every night. Um, but... That that doesn't work with a
0: teenager who doesn't want to brush (laughs) her teeth. I can't imagine how that's going to work with a four-year-old.
1: Yeah. So the more you can make it something that's engaging, where they feel like they're having a good time with you. Um, And the added bonus is that for a lot of our parents who are so busy and have so little time with their kids, this is a way of turning chore time into a really nice connecting time.
0: And is it something, though, that's sustainable? I mean, it seems like, you know, you were talking about everybody being busy and... That, that's that's an approach that's sort of let's look for the animals in your mouth that's something that is, I think is okay for somebody who's got leisure leisure time they're not rushed they're not feeling any sort of pressure to do something that's a, it's a creative approach I'm not criticizing it in any way I'm just saying that I think there's certain times where somebody would say you know I think I could try that out and other times where it's just god I'm late let's go well
1: you know I felt that way when my kids were, were little sometimes I felt like why can't they just do it why do I have to make a big deal about it but what I discovered is that when I would say, just do it, you have to do it now. They didn't necessarily do it anyway. And sometimes that I got more resistance and it took longer than if I hmm. said, I think I hear your toothbrush calling. Asher, <laughs> Asher, I feel so lonely. Please come and chew on me. Oh, your toothbrush is calling you. A two year old or a three year old <laughs> is probably gonna run up to that bathroom to get the toothbrush. Whereas when I say it is toothbrush town, go now, I may or may not get that kid up. I've tried using force to get a kid's mouth open. I can tell you, it's not a very effective approach to, to getting their teeth brushed. So, um, okay. so you're right. It, sometimes this does feel like, ugh, I don't have it in me, and we'll have to use some other strategies. This is a this is an approach that, if you can get yourself to get in the, in, in the playful mood. It's so often yeah. the faster way,
0: right? All right. So, what about the feelings? Let's get back to that. How sure. how are we going to cause get them to express to us what the feelings are? And they're probably not going to do it in words that we would understand, or in a way that we would understand it, articulating it. I mean,
1: yes, right. Um, sometimes we have to we have to. I think of our I think of it as we have to translate what our kids are saying and what they're showing us. Um, into the words that would describe how they 're actually feeling, mm-hmm. um, so I had a mom in one of my groups who had a she had two girls and when when she told us this story, they were four and six her six year old had gone to a birthday party, and the four year old wasn 't invited the six year old was at that age where she could go alone to a birthday party four year old didn 't quite understand that six year old comes home with a goodie bag. And she has Uh two lollipops in her goodie bag, a red one and a pink one. And the little one, whose name was Sarah, says, Sarah says, I want a lollipop. It's not fair that she got a lollipop. And the, the older one says, oh, well, you could have the red one. Now the mom thinks, oh, that is so nice of her. She's being so generous. She didn't have to do that. Guess what Sarah says?
0: I don't want the, want the one.
1: red one. I want the pink one. And the mom says to her, well, you you should be grateful that you got any lollipop at all. She didn't have There's to give you one. There was a word
0: that just went over her head. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: That was so nice of her. She, you, should, you should say thank you. And the little one just started screaming and crying, and she ran to her room. And the mom thought to herself, oh, wait, what is that thing about acknowledging feelings? What was I supposed to do? So she went <laughs> back to her room, and she said, oh, Sarah... You really wanted to have a pink lollipop. You don't want the red one. You like the color pink. And she looked around the room. You have pink bedspread, and you have pink teddy bears. You really like the color pink. And Sarah came over and sat on her lap and leaned up against her, and they talked about the color pink for a few minutes. And then she, she gave her, you know her, her mom a hug and went downstairs and played with her older sister, and it was over. So the mom had to figure out what was going on and put into words what this girl felt. She wasn't saying to her, to her, I don't like this. She just started screaming and crying. Um, but, and it doesn't always end that easily, you know. <laughs> but no, by that, putting a... into words what she felt, that girl felt like, oh, mom gets it. Yeah, I did want the pink one. I am disappointed. And she could, she could work through it and let it go.
0: Okay, so give us a couple other situations. I think some some more test cases of how this 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 kind of thing works out. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, another way to acknowledge feelings is to give kids their wishes in fantasy. Sometimes we can't give them what they want, but that doesn't mean we can't give it to them in fantasy. So um, I'm going to tell you a story about my oldest son when he was two. Okay. We took him to the beta breaker's end of the race. um, And after the race was over, we got in the car and he was hungry and he wanted a banana which I often had with me, but I didn't happen to have at that point. And, of course, at first I say, I'm sorry, I don't have a banana. Do you want a cracker? No, I want a banana. I'm like, well, gosh, I don't have one. Maybe we can get one when we get home. I want one now. So finally I remembered what I'm teaching in these workshops. (laughs) And I say, oh, Asher, I wish I had a banana for you. He says, I want a banana. I want one. I said, I wish I, you know what, Asher? I wish I didn't just have one banana. I wish I had a whole bunch of bananas. And he goes, oh, a bunch of bananas. I said, if we could have any kind of bananas, would you like to have a really ripe banana with brown spots? Or do you like it just kind of yellow? And he thinks about it. I think I'd like yellow. And I said, or maybe we could have purple bananas or blue bananas. And suddenly we were having a whole conversation about fantastical bananas and we had bananas on the roof we had bananas all over the car and we actually made it the 20 minute ride home <laughs> to the apartment uh, we're talking about bananas without him absolutely losing it so that's okay. an example of giving him his wishes in fantasy i didn't have a banana but i gave it to him in fantasy
0: so what's the thought there what's the feeling behind that or, or can we can you make that connection also there
1: he really wanted something that he couldn't have. It's just very disappointing not to get something. It's frustrating when you have an idea in your head and you can't get it.
0: So, all right, so that, that's kind of, there's kind of a theme of wanting something. Are, do kids have other needs, little kids this age, preschool? There's other needs besides wanting something.
1: They have fe- all kinds of feelings. They feel sad. They feel frustrated. They feel happy. Those, Of course, the, when they feel happy, it's a lot easier to say, oh, you're so excited oh, yeah. to see your grandfather. Um, it's when they are scared. Oh, you didn't like that. You, that loud sound scared you. You didn't expect that. Um, so a- anytime they have any any feeling at all, it can be really helpful to put into words what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think for parents it's a lot harder when the feelings are what we might call negative feelings, the feelings that we, we wish our di- kids didn't have to have when they're scared or frustrated or angry. Um, but even kids who have very little language can really be helped by us putting into words what they are feeling. So, you know, my, my daughter, when she was barely talking, was trying to reach the sink, and she's starting to go, uh, 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 you know, and I, I say, oh, Shereel, you're frustrated. You want to reach the water. You're frustrated. And she said, Fustated, frustrated, frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> know? And I think I you know, I, I avert the temper tantrum by being able to say that's what you want. And of course, if it's something I can help with, I can say what should it's we do? Yeah. Should we get the step stool? Should I pick you <laughs> up?
0: Give me just an idea of the, the biggest challenge that you come across, the question that you get from parents most often.
1: Okay, so one question they'll ask me is when I when I acknowledge their feelings, does it mean I have to give them what they want?
0: You know, oh, that's a good question. If if yeah. they
1: say they want candy for dinner, and I say, oh, <laughs> you really want candy for dinner? Well, then aren't they going to think I'm going to give it to them? And I think there's a real distinction between acknowledging their feelings and giving in to what they want um, or okay. approving of their behavior. So even a kid who's, who's hit his brother and is really mad at him and you say, oh, you're so mad at him. You wanted to hit him. I can't let you hit. we okay. need to tell him with, in words. That made me mad. I want to turn. So I, so I I want parents to know that there's a big distinction between acknowledging their feelings and approving of their behavior.
0: So there's a point where you can say, yes, but, yeah, I understand you want a banana and there are blue bananas and I'd like to have one growing out of my forehead, but I just don't happen to have a banana here.
1: Yeah, but watch your butts. I always tell parents, watch your butts. Okay. If you say, yes, I know you want that, but you can't have it, I've taken it away oh, too quickly. Oh, you just shot it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's much better to say, I know you want that, Ugh. What should we do? We can't eat that for dinner.
0: Julie King, co-author with Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children, Ages 2 to 7. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the pet of allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry.
1: There's enough food in this
0: country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you
1: by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bratt. Today's Ask Mr. Dad segment is very apropos to today's show. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I are having trouble conceiving. After putting us through months of testing, the fertility doctor we're seeing says that the problem is on my end. I'm devastated. I just assumed that women were the ones who had fertility problems, and I feel like a complete failure, as if I'm not a man anymore. What can I do? Are there vitamins or supplements I can take or behaviors I can do or stop doing? The first thing to do right now is lighten up on yourself. A lot of people think of fertility issues as affecting only women, but they are wrong. That misconception, so to speak, may be aggravated by the fact that most fertility doctors are OBGYNs. The truth is that about 40% of fertility problems are the woman's, 40% are the man's, and the remaining 20% are simply what they call unexplained. Infertile women are often anxious, stressed, depressed, and feel like failures as women and partners. For men, there's a lot of macho tied up in being able to get a woman pregnant. Many new dads I've interviewed say they experienced a sense of vitality and virility and pride when the pregnancy test came back positive. It was like a confirmation that everything was in working order, which comes as quite a relief to a lot of guys. Men who can't impregnate their partner have many of the same feelings that women do, and that you do. As far as vitamins and supplements, there are plenty of scams out there, so my advice is to stay away from the Internet and be very, very careful. That said, some studies have linked vitamin C, B vitamins, especially B12, and zinc with increased sperm counts. But check with the fertility doctor before you start popping any pills. As far as behaviors to stop or start, here are a few suggestions. Quit smoking. Eliminate alcohol and caffeine and eat as clean a diet as you can. Foods with a lot of chemicals, like bacon, for example, or pesticides may reduce sperm counts, so eating organic could help. Work out, but don't go overboard. Exercise is as close to a panacea as we have in the world, improving just about every area of our life. But a recent study found that exercising to the point of exhaustion may actually reduce sperm count. Plus, even if it has no effect, it might make you too tired to have sex, which would produce the same result. Keep cool. Sperm perform better in colder temperatures, which is why the testicles are located outside the body. That may explain why a disproportionate number of babies are born in August and September, roughly nine months after the coldest time of the year. Switching from those tidy whities to boxers may help. Briefs can lead to overheating, which decreases circulation and a drop in sperm count. Stay out of the sauna, too. Wear a kilt. Men who do have better quality sperm and are more fertile, according to a study published in the Scottish Medical Journal. Where else would you expect a study on kilts to be done? Practice a lot. As men get older, the quality of their sperm goes down and the possibility of damaged DNA goes up. Saving it up for a few days might seem like a good idea, but men who ejaculate seven days in a row actually have less DNA damage than men who go several days without sex.